Okay. I think we're about all here. If they'll just come, they'll find a seat and get their paper because we've got a lot to cover in a short time, so we're going to be on the trot. And y'all are going to be just like the other one. This, cha- this book has, I think, 16 chapters. And we've got four weeks. Uh, so we're going to cover four chapters a week broadly in here with the main ideas. So if you want to get the book, I got these at a real bargain. I don't know if she has any left or not. I think she still has one, two, or three. Five dollars for a $15 book, not a bad deal. Uh, and it reads real easy. That's the good part. The chapters are short, too, so don't panic on me. All right? We got a couple more settling in, then we'll get started. I already started you, fortunately, in the sermon last week. I know y'all remember every word I said, so we don't have to worry about that, right? Right, right. (laughs) Good point. Well, you didn't need to pay then. No, no I just didn't pay. I'm going to have money. Oh, uh, <laughs> I need to check my house. Yeah, that's right. Gosh, I got my change back. That's unusual with her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Welcome. Welcome, God. Welcome to this class. Let your Holy Spirit come and be among us as we talk and as we reflect and as we leave, so that by the conclusion of our weeks together, that we might have a better sense of what we're searching for, of who we're searching for, of who is always searching for us. For we ask your blessings upon all that we do as we continue our journey toward the cross. And then that glorious day on Easter morn when we celebrate the life you've given us all in Christ. Bless each of us as we work together, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, my name is Doug Miller. We have a a visitor from Vista Ridge United Methodist Church, Bill? Bill Bill Burton. Good to have you, Bill. Glad to have you join us this evening for class amongst the rest of these Methodist clans that are gathered here. The book is entitled God's at War. It's a little G on the face of your book at purpose, on purpose. Everywhere you find the big God in it, you'll see a capital G. So we'll try and check him out, but I think he'll be pretty consistent with that. The author is a pastor of one of our larger congregations, a Christian congregation in Louisville, Kentucky. If you haven't read his readings before, he's really to the point and does a good job of writing in very kind of short and concise chapters. We have a 16-chapter book, as I already mentioned to some of you, and so I want you to know that we'll be in this four weeks. We'll end on the Wednesday night before Holy Week because on the, uh, that week we'll be having worship uh, that evening, so we need to be through. So that means four chapters a week. You don't have to buy the book, but it's an easy read and it's cheap. So uh, unfortunately, I think the last of them is gone, or do we have one left? we have one left? Okay, we have one left at that price. I bought them at a bargain, so you got the bargain price. Um, As I began last week teaching uh, during the sermon, I kind of introduced the book a little bit, and I'll hit on a couple of things that were mentioned in chapter 1 just to refresh some of in case somebody missed Sunday morning. Uh, Like Bill, 
who was worshiping his home church. But the points made in the first chapter are really huge ones, and they're really easy for us because it's not something that we haven't heard before. Idolatry is the one great sin that all others come from. You might have heard this before. You might have been like me. I've heard a few sermons. I've preached a few sermons. I've read a few books. I don't know that I've ever heard it said that way before about idolatry. I don't know that I've ever heard it said that idolatry is the one great sin that all others come from. However, the writer of this book, Brother Idleman, is convinced that's the truth. And by the end of this book, we'll probably read so much about idols, idols we'll be believing him too. I don't know. But that is his point. His major thesis of the book is that idolatry is the one great sin that all others come from. We'll work through that as we go along. The second point he made in that chapter on page 23 is that God is not interested in being in just being first among many. That is a hard concept for, for us. It's not hard for us to say that. We kind of understand it. But then when you ask yourself in your life, is God always dominant in your life? Is God always first? You might find yourself that you've been chasing some other gods as you continue to read through this book. And that occasionally we all fall slippery into the area we call sin. And if his first premise is true, then logically that would mean we have other gods in our life, whether we are aware of them or not. And I think that's a great point in his book because it's very easy for all of us to uh, fall prey to giving certain things an inordinate amount of attention and time and money in our lives. Now, he's going to try and convince us of that, and we're going to argue with him probably a lot of the way through. Uh, but that's just the nature of the book. But I think taking any conclusion to a radical end is dangerous, but I'm going to keep trying to see if he can hold that together for the whole way through, and I think you'll enjoy his journey. He makes the point also in the first one, as we talked about last week, that anything at all can become an idol once it becomes a substitute for God in our lives. That's interesting that he said it that way because I remember once in a sermon when I got awakened because I probably hadn't been paying as much attention as I could have. And I think the preacher was Jack Gray. Y'all probably remember Jack Gray, the evangelist and a, a great preacher in the Methodist church. He came to our church often. He was a pastor there in his young life and liked to drove him crazy in a short while because Jack had so much energy they couldn't keep up with him in that particular church. And I remember him saying something I almost positive as him in the middle of a sermon that got my attention when I was, I think, still a teenager at that point. And he said something like, a lot of people are worshiping their spouses or their children. And that's, I don't think he called it an idol, but he said they were worshiping them. And I remember that at that time in my life, I was like, what? That's, that's weird. What do you mean worshiping, worshiping your wife or worshiping your children? And then he went on to make the point that how we can slowly but surely fall trapped to worshiping anything in our lives by giving it the prominence that God alone wants to hold in our heart, which is kind of behind the idea that you should love God more than you love anything else. Now, when we take our wedding vows, it's kind of funny. I hear people say all the time, what do you love most in your life? A lot of times what I hear is the children. <laughs> That's the first thing they say. I'm kind of, isn't that a little weird? That's not the way it's supposed to work, right? You're supposed to love your spouse best. But then really that's not the right answer either. You're supposed to love God more than you love anyone or anything else in your whole life. Related to that, I remember once upon a time in a Bible study, we had several guys who decided it would be uh, entertaining to take a class that I was teaching, uh, knowing me in a lot of other different categories. And we got on the subject of being passionately in love with God. And they looked at me a little weird, and I said, okay, so here's my question. Do you love God with the same kind of passion and intensity that you love your wife? And, of course, that brought a few chuckles from a couple of men. They said, what are you talking about? I said, just what I said. Do you love God as passionately as you are in love with your wife? And if the answer is not yes, then you have misplaced your love in this world. And they were just kind of like, whoa, well, I don't know about all that. I said, well, that's what we're going to talk about. Because loving God first and foremost in your life is a lot larger than we admit a lot of times in our lives. And I think it's very easy, you think about it, 
It's very easy for us to make God first among many when we're at our best, right? You're not really, you're not really, you're not really saying yeah. Yeah. Now, but it's very easy in the busyness of life and the pace of life to find yourself giving it an inordinate amount of time to other things, time that should be reserved just for God. Now, I could start giving examples, and I don't know which ones would be safe in this crowd, so I, I feel safe in just saying whatever, like people who have to play sports on Sunday mornings. Now, because I was raised in an era when you couldn't play sports on Sundays, it's easy for me to say that's a terrible sin. <laughs> However, I remember that uh, our coach demanded, without demanding it, and I was, as a freshman in high school, too stupid to know it, the gym was open on Sunday for you to come and shoot. You can't be coached on Sunday. It's against the rules, and you'd be kicked out of the, out of the tournament. So as a freshman, I heard him say, if, if you want to come to the gym, it'll be open. I lived out in the country 10 miles away, and I couldn't afford to be driving back and forth. And I, it said if it was open, and I knew my daddy wouldn't let me go anyway on Sunday. So I didn't go. And the very next tournament we had, as a, only one of only two freshmen on the team, he called out the team that was going to travel for the weekend Christmas tournament, and my name wasn't on it. First time that year, and I'm like, what? What happened, you know? Because I... Let's face it, at that age, I worshiped basketball a lot, a whole lot. And when he told me I wouldn't go on the tournament, it was like driving a knife in my heart. And he said, you know why? No, I don't know why. I'm a dumb freshman, although I didn't say as much. I just said, you said we'd come if we could, if we wanted to. He says, that means you're supposed to be here. And I went home and told my daddy, who I thought would never cave in to anything like that, but I told him anyway, because I was, of course, very visibly upset, and my dad was mad enough to kill him. Uh, but, in the end, to my shock, and now, years later, disappointment is such a strong word about your daddy who's gone, but let's just say that daddy gave in and said, okay, if he's that big of an idiot, I guess you can go and shoot on Sunday when you have to go. So I did. Well, I said, really? Okay, I'm gone, you know. Later on, as I got to thinking about that, there was not one thing right about that in my daddy's eyes. His love for me and knowing my love for the sport caused him to do something that really was against his better judgment. He shouldn't have done it. Now, what would that have meant to me then? What might it have meant to that coach is what I always wondered. If my daddy would have gone up to him and said, you know what you're doing is illegal, Just saying, but that wasn't my daddy's way. He was a quiet, silent person about school. That's back in the day, you know, when teachers were always right. So, idolatry happens very easily. I have a grandchild. You know how hard it is not to worship your grandchildren? If you're not around them very long at a time, it's really hard. The longer you're around them, the easier it gets not to worship them. Like on a long car ride. We took a long car ride for two hours there and two hours back for a funeral yesterday. And with a three-year-old and a four, a four-month-old and a four-year-old, it became very easy not to worship them. By the time we got home, we said, bye, we're, we're done here. You know, we're inside. But just remember, to contemplate the idea that anything at all can become a substitute for God in your life. Now, we're going to talk about that a little more in chapter 2. If you have a book, if you've already read it, this is a book to be underlined a lot, and you're going to be doing that a lot. And after this week, you'll have read and caught up with me, I know, and you'll be through chapter 8 by the time we meet next week. Um, remember, it reads quickly. Fifteen minutes is a chapter, if not less. Um, it's entitled The Battleground of the Gods. And I mentioned this also Sunday in the introduction. He says, it starts out with a cute little illustration for our world. It says, you know, uh, how you use a computer is defined by your, your searches, right? What you're searching for all, all the time is what you're interested in. That's why when somebody gets convict, convicted, for instance, of child pornography, they take your computer apart and see what all the sites you've gone to, and that's what sends you to prison. That's what happened to one of the United Methodist ministers uh, about three years ago now who's still in the pen, and he's in, uh, he was a pastor in our conference. 
And once the idea became clear, the first thing they did was seize his computer because what you're interested in shows up on your computer if you use it very much. He had, and it put him in the pen, and he's still there. If you were judged by your data searches, would you be going to jail? Would you be going to divorce court? Would you be going to the IRS to confess because they had your computer? Would you be embarrassed if your children or grandchildren knew what you were searching or looking for on your computer? Or what if they could actually see the computer inside you and know what you're really searching for in life? What would they see? How pure would they view you then? It's, it's a startling kind of thought to think about because he makes the point on page 30 that what you are searching for and chasing after reveals a God that is winning the war in your heart. I can remember when. It was basketball. I can remember when as a young pastor in Ector, Texas, they had a 6 o'clock worship service in the late 70s when the Cowboys actually were winning and it was worth watching them. And I can remember, I hated 5.50 to come when they were still playing and I had to walk across the parking lot. i got to go teach Bible study. That's a great attitude to have, right? I mean, what was, what was I really searching for at that moment? Where was my heart really? It was in the dumbheadedness of being a young male who didn't have all his priorities right. It took a while for me to wear that down, I'll be honest. Like it had taken me a while, I had to actually put my golf clubs up at once in my life for six weeks and not touch them. Not even look, well, I did look at them, but I set them in the corner where I got in the car. So every time I went out to the car, I remembered I'm not playing golf on Sunday afternoons. I'm going to church and be there more. I'm a slow study. I know y'all don't have any of those kind of issues in your life, but I certainly had them in mind along the way at different times. Uh, Now, it's pretty, it's much easier. I'm not going to say there's not occasionally a wistful moment. Occasionally on Christmas Eve, as much as I love Christmas Eve worship, I I remember that I haven't been with Christmas Eve with my family and except my immediate family in many, many years. But it's part of the deal. Because even more than my family that I love dearly, when I had to miss family functions, and my family was one of those families that got together every time the sun came up or the moon came down or there was any other reason to, I wasn't there for years and years. And that's just kind of the way it had to be. And it was a trial. But after a while, you get used to it. Now, you know what you missed, but you know you chose the thing that was number one in your heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, Your heart is a center of the life. Everything flows from it. This chapter 2 is telling us to look at our life from inside out. That's your life. And then it turns around in Proverbs 27, 19, and says everything in your life is a sign of what's really in your heart. Your life and your heart don't tell lies. So that's why, you know, when, when people say things that they love and then you check their life and it doesn't reflect it, and vice versa, things are coming out of their mouth that are in their heart when they lose control, and we're good with control, let's face it. We're, pretty, we're good fakers, right? I mean, we're as good as a four-year-old. What happened to that toy? I don't know. Yeah, you know you threw it behind the couch 30 seconds ago. I saw you do it. Uh-uh. Look at me like you're, I'm an idiot, you know, and I'm saying, I saw you. But in our minds, we can convince ourselves of almost anything at different times in our lives. And that's why we do sometimes really crazy things. And that's why scriptures are continually saying, and I agree, that your heart and your life usually do agree when not everybody's watching. And it's when people see you then, or when you're stressed and you lose a little bit of that self-control, that people know who you really are. That's a frightening thought. I realize that. Remember, and the bottom line of all this is there's still forgiveness. Thank God for that, right? Thank God there's still forgiveness in our lives when we mess up. He goes on in that chapter talking about the heart as being the center of where everything flows from to talk 
about what we treat more often than anything in our, in our world is is uh, what we call behavior modification, or he calls it symptom-based care. Now, this is where the trick comes in. Uh, it's always easier to talk about yourself. So um, why am I large enough for two human beings? It's because I have a passion and a love for food, right? That seems to be the, that's what I've told people for years. That's what I've tried to tell my wife for 41 years. Well, maybe 40. First year, I wasn't all that big, and then she realized the snowball was coming. But loving food to the point where it becomes gluttony is making food an, an idol, and there's a reason why you're doing it. But most of the time, we're thinking it's because I like food. Well, who doesn't like food? But they're not all this size, right? Who doesn't like food and eat when they're stressed? My mother-in-law, bless her heart, she's with Jesus now, she got stressed a lot, and she was skinny as a beanpole. But what she did when she got stressed, she couldn't eat. She couldn't eat at all. I mean, it would make her physically ill to eat when she was sick. I've often wondered, how did we get that so mixed up? Could we have met somewhere in the middle? She could have been a normal weight, and so could I, maybe. But, you know, we have things. So what is it in my heart? And I remember one book I bought once. You'll find this funny. It was about losing weight. It was about, uh, what was the title of that book? Love Hunger, I think, was the title of it. You're Hungry for Love. And I thought that was the craziest title. Somebody gave it to me. I didn't actually buy it. I would never have bought the book with that title. It might tell me something I didn't want to hear. But the, just the insinuation and reading the cover, I never read the book. Because I didn't want to be told that I loved food. Because that would be more serious than just liking the taste of food. Even when it was obviously not good for me. Now, what it feels like is when you change your mind on that battle and you go into a, a period where you're doing good, it's chapter 3, right? Let me see if that's right. No, it's chapter 4. I'll get to that. What happens? Remind me to come back to the weight thing in chapter 4, and I will. Then he comes, uh, just says quite, for, quite clearly, just focus on the inside. Focus on your heart. What do you feel? That means when you hear something on TV, and this is a really a growing edge for Doug, you say, a growing edge for you, you're, you're about ready to die. Well, I'm going to keep growing until I die. That's my idea. If I'm 100, I'm going to keep trying to grow. So it's only in recent years that I've come to deal with some of my anger. When I hear things on TV, somebody did this terrible thing. Now, I still get angry, but I don't wish they would die. For years, I wish they would have an immediate trial and immediate execution, and we could all watch so everybody else would quit it especially when they would go so far as to harm a child. And I would just think, well, death penalty, let's do it. Let's rid the world of this disease. And you may still be there. I'm just telling you that for me, I finally came to the point one day where I recognized that my desire for judgment was inappropriate for a Christian. And I had to give it up. It wasn't easy after a lot of years of believing that it's okay to have the death penalty for me personally. And I, I know that people still believe it's fine, and I'm, I'm not quarreling with you about that. I've told you many times, you have the right to be wrong as long as you care to. We're going to make that point in chapter 3. I was wrong for many, many years about it. And I still understand why they have to be protected. Society has to be protected from it. But I believe overall, if I'm looking at that from a perspective of Jesus, things that got the death penalty in his day, he never gave in to those feelings. Even adultery got the death penalty in his day, but not in his eyes. So I've come to grips with that. I don't want death penalty anymore. I don't really want to spend that much money on them either in prison, I'll admit that. But that's a better preference because at least in there they have a chance to turn to God for the rest of eternity. I always used to say, well, we'll let them have a priest right before they're executed and they still will go to heaven. You see how sick that is? That's my, I get my vengeance out on them when they've done something awful. Now, I didn't really want that for any kin folks that were in trouble or anybody I really knew. Just people I didn't really know, the nameless, kind of meaningless people to me. Oh, that's right. I'm supposed to love everyone as I love myself. It's the people that love judgment usually don't love it for their own kind. 
their own family, which means they don't really love judgment. They just like to see other people punished as long as it's not them. This thing about having idols gets really deep inside, and that's why I suggested a heart cath exam. And you'll read all about that on pages 36 to 40. I know many of you have not had the chance to read this book, but, of course, I couldn't do it in the sermon. But let me just read you a spiritual, what a spiritual arteriogram or a spiritual heart cath might look like. What disappoints you? Where would your, in other words, your greatest disappointments show that you were hungering for? That's the way to identify an idol. If your greatest disappointment was you got fired from a job, what does that mean? And half of your family is not believers. What would that mean? If your greatest disappointment was something even more challenging, what if your greatest... I'm not even going to say that one. Uh, just, it's too much. The second question he says is, what do you complain about the most? Oh, my Lord. What do you complain about the most? If you comp- constantly complain about your financial situation, maybe money has become too important for you. If you constantly whine to your spouse about your sex life, maybe sexual pleasure has become a god. If you constantly complain about lack of respect in the office, maybe what other people think about you matters more than it should. If you constantly complain about what kind of year your team is having, maybe sports has become your God. What we complain about reveals what really matters to us. Whining, in many ways, is the opposite of worshiping the Lord. Where do you make financial sacrifices? Wow. Ooh. That's the whole thing behind faith promises, isn't it? You're supposed to sacrifice something in your life and trust God to provide you with more ways to pay whatever it is you're, you're planning to do above your tithe. Um, whining about your money is a way of escaping what, you, you're, what you're really worshiping is. Um, I'm happy to say that did I announce that Sunday in church? No, I didn't because I didn't learn it to Monday. But our mission pledges this year were $92,000. Last year, our budget was only sixty-six, and I'm assuming that was based on a large percentage of whatever was pledged. So we may have had as much as almost a 30% increase in mission pledges. That's pretty awesome if that's the case. That's pretty awesome to think about, uh, what God is doing in the hearts of people when it's moving them to make that kind of commitment, worries you. (laughs) Or for that matter, what keeps you up? Any of those things has the potential to be an idol. How many of you worry about how close you are to God? Don't raise your hand. But let me just ask you, how many of you worry that God doesn't have enough reasons to love you with the passion that God has for you? More obviously true How many of you worry anything about how much God loves you? You just take it for granted God does. How many of you worry that you're doing something or not doing something equally bad that really displeases God? How many of your sins worry you? Or you just chalk them up in the good old American way. I'm just a sinner saved by grace, thank God. I'm on my way to heaven in a little rowboat and I'm happy. That is the common kind of way we approach it, right? Thank God for the uh, people who have taught us to think that way. And forgive us, God, that we all love to think that way. Right? Now, I realize I'm preaching in front of the choir. I don't have my robe to hide me. So, But I'm smaller than I was. Now I'm getting to chapter 3. Chapter 3 is that God is a jealous God and he pursues us constantly because his love is so great for us. However, because your heart is a battleground of the gods, when you start winning the victory, doesn't mean you've won. You know how many pounds I've lost in my life? Oh, my Lord. Not enough, Sally will tell you. Not enough. 
But the thing that matters is not how many pounds I've lost lately. The thing that matters is how many pounds have I lost the last few days? And how many pounds am I going to lose tomorrow? You see, what really matters is have I changed my mind about the way I eat? Because otherwise, the rest of it is just called dieting. It's a great business in our country. People get rich off of it. People lose weight, put it back on, which, by the way, is more unhealthy than just keeping it on. But the reality is, as long as food is my passion and my refuge, I'm going to stay big. But as long as every day I eat less than I used to eat and eat better things than what I ate before, I'll keep taking up notches in my belt like I've been doing until pretty soon my belt size will be a lot smaller. And I'll be worried more about, you know, walking around and having to pull up my pants all the time, you know. They're in an extra notch now, actually a notch and a half, and it needs to be another, but I'm afraid to put on that tight. I'm afraid I won't be able to breathe, but they're, they're getting baggy. I love the baggy feeling, but the question is that God in my head is still right there just waiting, waiting for the moment when I won't eat three bites of cake, but I'll eat a third of the cake. Won't wait till I'll eat one cookie, but I'll eat four. Won't wait until I have one dessert to have one every day for the next week. And every time that I say I can't touch it at all, I'm giving in to the idea that I'm addicted to not being able to say no at appropriate times. It's not that sweets kill you. It's the amount of sweets that kill you. I testify. So unless you have that great little thing that God puts in us, some of us by birth, where you can eat, I know a few skinny people, who what they eat is sinful uh, compared to what it does to them from my eyes because I'm jealous because they can eat and eat and never gain weight. Those, got, those are lucky people. I'm not one of those, obviously. I used to be, I used to make jokes about it to my fat daddy and my fat big brother. How bad? My brother would have killed me numerous times could he have caught me when he was in high school and I was the skinny little guy that had a never-ending motor and I would taunt him till it was pathetic. And if he could have caught me before I got into Mama's coattail, I would not be teaching this lesson tonight. You say, well, why do you keep talking about your weight? Because it's safe, because I know I'm the most overweight person in the room and I always am. That will change someday and I'll probably have to change my illustration more because anything else, what you're thinking about now, hopefully, is not your weight. But whatever it is inside you that has become an idol in your life that's more important to you than what should be your God. And that's the reason I keep talking about it because it never goes away. I can lose down to my shortly post-marital weight, 185 pounds, and my wife will be in heaven until I sit down and I order a piece of pie three times in a row. And then she'll be saying, Douglas, and I'll be saying, Sally, don't say it. I know. But do I? Will I know? You think that, that, you think that thing's going to quit bothering me? You think your thing's going to quit bothering you? I can guarantee it's not. Because the gods that are inside you are worshiping and fighting for the right to have your heart. And they will never quit. You have a sex thing in your life? It's not going to go away until you take it off the throne. You have a thing about success, it's not going to go away until you take it off your throne. You have a thing about your your kids doing a certain thing with their life, getting a certain kind of education, so much that everything in your whole life revolves around that, including your tithe that goes to your children's school account. Your children would be better off if your tithe was going to the church. And you were taking what God provided for you after that to take care of their education. But that's not what our culture says. That's not the way most of us practice our lives. We can turn anything into an idol. Did I mention that? Next week, when we've read more in, in advance, we'll be able to sit and talk about some, some of the things because you're going to underline the same things I'm underlining in this book because he's just right there. Every page you read, he's just right there in your face. And he keeps hammering it home. Here's one for you. Page 46 in your book. You'll want to underline this when you get there. I don't think I'd ever thought about it this way either. 
Idolatry is adultery. That's what goes behind that little illustration I used in the sermon Sunday about somebody coming and seeing me with another woman that was not my wife. Actually, I described a blonde, which is the color of my wife's sister's hair. I can promise you it wouldn't be with my wife's sister. Uh, if you only knew my wife's sister, you'd understand the joke behind that. She thought of it and so did I. She said, stop it right there, stop it right there. Uh, idolatry is adultery. It's cheating on God. And that's why it says God is a jealous God. That used to kind of bother me, and it used to be my excuse early on when I was like a mini male, a pretty jealous young male. And so I would get jealous about things regarding girlfriends, wives all through the year. And a lot of men are that way. Wife, excuse me. That's why I only had one, didn't I, dear? All right. Um, She didn't miss that, did she? She caught that sense right quickly. If idolatry is adultery, and if God is a jealous God, then every time that we commit idolatry, God is beside himself. Now, I know that's getting real human terms with God, but if you think about God loves you so much, he's like the, quote, hound of heaven that the book was written about. He's always pursuing us because he loves us so much, he never gives up. Even when we turn our backs on him, he never gives up. Even when we spit in his face, he never gives up. He's the hound of heaven that will never leave us alone. Love him or not love him, he will never quit following us. He will never quit chasing us. He will always be passionately in love with us so much that he can't stand it. And what he covets most is for us us to love him back. And every time we don't do that, it causes God a lot of pain. It breaks his heart, just like your children break your heart, except magnify it 10,000 times. Maybe that kind of image can help us when we're working on our sins. Now remember, adultery is both intentional and unintentional. He makes a point in his book, I forgot which chapter, I think I've already passed it and forgot to mention it. Let's see if I did. No, it comes last. I haven't gotten there yet. How much time do I have? i still got time. Okay. If God is that jealous and that passionately in love for us, if God is jealous for our whole heart, Does that mean God doesn't want us to have these other things that we do love? No, it doesn't mean that at all. He just wants us to love other things in the appropriate way that we love God. Love a God, love a job that is helpful to humanity. Don't love a job simply because it makes you wealthy. Don't love a job or keep a job when it comes between you and your God. Now, I found myself, you know what came through my mind right then that I wanted to say that I didn't say? I'm I'm going to say it now because it would have been wrong to say it out loud. Unless you really need a job to feed your family. What did I just do in my head? Rationalized and did what else? What did I make my family? An idol. I made my family an idol. Because you can't quit a job if you've got to feed your family. Because after all, God can't be trusted to see that your family's fed. And then we back up and say, well, he really can't. No, he really can't because we haven't been trusting him with our finances either. And we've been spending to the limit all our life and not saving anything because we've been worshiping that money all along and the stuff it gets us. It's, it's a pit. It's a huge pit. You're not going to be able to crawl out of this room without going through the pit. If you do, then you are obviously disagreeing with everything he's written. And he's given a lot of scripture. Probably the best scripture he comes to is in chapter 4 when he says the title of the sermon is Calling All Gods. <laughs> That's a clever title for a chapter. And then he goes on to to paint us a picture of leading up to Joshua taking over after Moses, leading the people in the promised land. Chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. And when Joshua concludes his little speech to the people before he's going to die shortly. And what does he say? You've seen on how many placards in people's houses. Choose this day 
whom you shall serve. As for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. Now, what he does in those verses, he backs up and says, look at all he says. So if you have a Bible, turn to Joshua 24, and we'll begin with verse 14. If you have a book, you can do it that way, probably easier. It's in chapter 24, and it starts on page 60. Joshua 24, 14 and 15 are on your book, page 60. The gods of your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River. Joshua is going to lay out four things that are all choices for them. This is a beautiful thing, a tantalizing thing, and a frightful thing about Christianity. Is we get to choose everything. We get to choose to follow and choose not to follow. We get to choose once, we get to choose tomorrow. We get to choose the day after. Everything we do in our faith life is always by choice and it's always a matter of what we love. Everything we choose is a matter of what we love, what we're passionate about, what is important in our hearts. That's why it's easier for me to tell sometimes people when they're telling me what a sorry outfit I am, it's easy for me to smile. And they say, what are you smiling about? I just told you what a despicable person you are. I say, yeah, but my mama still loves me. And that's important to me and a lot more important than what you say now because you can't stand my shadow. And I couldn't possibly be as bad as you said or God would have already struck me dead, you know, something cute or smart like that. But the reality is it's true in a lot of ways. If we know we're loved on the inside and we know that we are the right kind of person when somebody accuses you falsely for the wrong reasons and you know inside you're not guilty, really, you really, really know it, then you can smile. You don't even have to get all that angry about it. You feel sorry for them because they're, they're upside down. And they're upside down with God and don't realize it. But if you know inside what you really love, then you can't be shaken. Yeah, it's, it goes back to that first principle. I shall have no other gods before me. Do not make any idols. I'm going to be one and number one. Or, he makes a point, I'm not going to be anything. That's a scary line. And preachers love that line. And you always have to soften it because it's not literally, it's not literally true because think about it. If it were literally true, if God would have no, if you can't look, love other gods occasionally at a short period of time more than you love God, then the literal truth would be that as soon as you did that, you wouldn't love God at all because God won't have any other gods before him. He won't have any other gods in the same room. He's a jealous God. He didn't want to be one among your top ten. He wants to be one, period. Everything else is so far off the page they can't be counted. Well, now, have any of you lived that kind of life? Any of you not had any idols in your life ever? Not even for a week, a bad moment, a bad day, or kind of an ongoing sin that maybe nobody knows about. Maybe even your spouse doesn't know about it. So after 40 years, I don't think there's a lot we don't know about each other, but I can't look completely inside that throbbing, beating, pure heart of my wife to know exactly every thought and every inclination, although there might have been a few times when in her passion she might have thought of committing murder with a guy snoring beside her. You know, it's possible. I don't know that. It's possible. I know my thoughts. And if you think I'm going to share them, you are out of your mind. Because <laughs> it ain't going to happen. But that's just, that is true for all of us in some way. Now, if God couldn't forgive us for a temporary idol, we couldn't be forgiven for sin, could we? So that's what I'm talking about. There's always this thing that goes on with authors. They make points, and they're good points, but you can't always take them all the way to the end of the road and say it about everything, or we'd all be lost and would never be found. Let's face it. only way you could go to heaven would be standing at the casket and say, Okay, Lord, I love you with all my heart, mind, and soul, and strength. I repent of every sin I've ever done and fall in the casket dead. Otherwise, you probably would commit another sin in the next 24 hours at least, if not three hours later. Unintentionally or intentionally, you'd be in trouble. But let's don't read his book because we've got three more weeks to study it. So, four points on a compass. Do you love the God of our fathers? When I went to tell my daddy I was called to ministry and my mama, sitting in their little living room, I remember it like it was yesterday. My daddy had, or it was sitting on the couch. He'd worked for the postal service for 
like 20 some odd years at that point in his life, never worked anywhere else, never missed a day in work, never sold a car for more than his worth, never missed a day of working. What did he say first thing out of his mouth? Because after I told him I was going to go into the ministry, I also told him I was going to quit my job at the post office working nights because I had to go to school full time to get through as soon as I could because I only had a year and a half of college and I was 27 and I thought I'd be an old man before I'd ever get out and then I had to go to seminary. First thing Dave said, well, Mama, I think she said the first thing. She said, mothers, you know, I'm not surprised. Well, I was. I don't know why she wouldn't have been because so, I, was, I was shocked after a year and a half of fighting. I thought a private battle other than my wife that she would be shocked. But Daddy, he said, you have to quit your job. I said, I can't go to school full-time if I don't quit that job. I'll have to work part-time doing something else. How are you going to feed your family? Sally's teaching school. Not a lot of money. I think it was $6,000 a year at that point. Remember those days some of you talked that far back? It was like our first job. And I said, well, we're not going to starve, but I have to do this. You sure you have to do this? I said, yep. He said, okay. But you see, Daddy's, one of Daddy's little idols and a little idol of the great generation was commitment to family and to work. It, it, it was. It was a strong suit, but it also, along with character, could become elevated to an idol. Now, it's hard for me to even say that because I know what they lived through. I heard the stories about the Depression. They were real. I know why they thought the way they thought. I know that the commitments they were making, they would have never have said it was an idol. Daddy would have never thought that was being an idol. I get that. But I also know that sometimes when you have these little idols, they're quiet little idols because that's the only way they can get to you. They subtly eat away at you. And that's why he says the gods of your ancestors, because every one of us is greatly influenced by our parents, by our family. I'm in church every Sunday because my parents were in church every Sunday. What did I tell my kids when they were growing up? And they started griping about going to church. I have to go to church every Sunday just because I'm the preacher's kid. I said, no, not really. Before we ever, ever had you or ever, ever thought about you, which was eight years we were married before that, we were in church every Sunday. And we, you will be in church every Sunday if I quit preaching. Because that's what we do. Oh, that helped. In fact, I turned out one of my kids told a young preacher going into ministry what was the best thing she could tell her kids. And one of my kids said that, that we knew that we would be in church all the time anyway, whether our children were pastors or not, to take away some of the steam of blaming everything on God when we weren't at home. That was passed on to me by my parents. That was their ethic to be in church. Fast forward to 2014 and we went to a funeral of a dear friend in a church that was very dear to us when we were there. And she was a, little, she was a pastor's daughter. She was a mess. I offered her a youth pastor's job and a children's minister's job when I was at that church years ago. And it took her away from a coffee shop job and gave her a career and a calling that her daddy mentioned to me going through the line as he was burying his daughter. Thank you for going and getting my daughter out of the coffee shop and giving her a calling. I tell you that to tell you this. At her funeral in a church that had never had a contemporary worship service in it, other than an occasional Saturday night gathering of mixed churches, her, her funeral that she planned out herself had the band on the stage and First Methodist Church in Paris, Texas, a four-story stained-glass dome church where... They were supporting this church that was a storefront church, kind of their daughter church. But they weren't going to bring that music into the sanctuary. But on her dying wish, <laughs> she had the band front and center. The preachers had about 10 minutes between three of them, and the rest of the hour was all contemporary music except one person sang the Lord's Prayer. And he was a big, large black man. And he sang it very well. The last song was Rock and Roll Christian Rock. What was the name of it? I forgot already. No. <laughs> it was... Uh, you'll think of it in a minute. No, we didn't know it. 
saying it all the time. Is it? Yeah, and she told him her uh, brother-in-law told him she wanted the, the, a rocky Christian song sung as the last song. Maybe times could change. I'd been sitting there for an hour thinking this. Listen to all this great Christian music, songs I sing all the time now that I used to never sing for many years in the church. And everybody's sitting on their hands. There's hardly anybody raising their hands. One time a singer got carried away and raised her hand. I'm sitting there looking at a lot of people I pastored for eight years, wanting to raise my hands and enjoy the worship. But the sense of what our ancestors had done and our ancestors in the faith was that I knew some of them were going, oh my God, how long is this going to last? And I'm thinking, this is great. Hear her message from the grave. But a lot of them couldn't. Because you see, the faith of their ancestors is what they believe the faith should still be. They're not open to change the way they worship. And you can say, oh, well, they've tried it, they just don't like it. Maybe. But there can be a lot of that are just not open to it. Because there are some people who like both kinds of worship. You know, I like Roman Catholic worship. I don't want to do it every week, don't get me wrong. And I'm not going to choose to do it regularly. I like contemporary worship. And some of it I can listen to often. I, I probably wouldn't choose it every week if I was choosing the worship. I like traditional worship. Some of you would probably say boring worship. I like that. I love the hymns. If it were my choice, you would never know what you were getting from Sunday to Sunday. And you would be forced to appreciate it all. Because none of the other can do what the other does. They can't. The words in our contemporary music can't compare to an understanding of the words in some of the hymns that have been sung for thousands of years. They can't. And yet some of those hymns can't compare to the joy that you get to experience and the passion of worshiping with your whole body. I love that about this church. I've never seen it done this well. Now I, I'm fearful of the time when I might go to another church where they did it poorly <laughs> or when I only had one thing, way to worship. It worries me. It concerns me deeply <laughs> because I don't know what I would do because I, I really wanted to preach from the balcony. Give me a mic, and I don't really need it in that room. I would have loved to say, get off your hands and worship for goodness sakes. You know, for her, if for no other reason, just try it. But if the God of your ancestors is the only God you worship, I have 10 minutes by that clock. That's accurate by mine. Second thing he option, he says also in verse 14, is you can worship the God of your past. And that really applies to the illustration I just gave. God of our past. Churches get stuck in the God of your past. Now, here's where it's not quite as much fun. What if the way we have been worshiping our God through service has not been working in the last 10 years where we are worshiping together now? I'm not talking about just worship. I'm talking about the way we serve. I'm talking about the way we study. I'm talking about the way we love. What if there's something in the way we have been functioning as a congregation for those years that has to change in order for the church to experience what it's like to be more of a growing, thriving church, yet a church more mixed with people at, people at all levels of their faith. What if that is at the root of our issues? Notice I did not say it was. So don't go out of here and say, you know what Doug said at class the other night? He said, we're worshiping the God of the past. I'm just telling you that the church always needs to be open to be creative and to change in the culture without giving up its most treasured values in their love for God. But they also have to be very sensitive to what might be a worship of the God of their past rather than really what God is calling them to today. It's just something to think about because it's easy to look at it. I know you enjoyed the first illustration about them 
using traditional worship, you might not have enjoyed the second one quite as much. Either is possible. And what if you like, and this is my sin, what if you just like to change everything all the time? Okay, I'm guilty. I love change. I'm a weird duck. I get tired of ruts rapidly. And I know that some people really don't. But every now and then from now on, as long as I'm here, and that's going to be a while yet, I think, you're going to be seeing something happen. You go, why didn't they do that? You can smile and think, maybe Doug just got tired of the other thing we were doing. Like, for instance, my daughter asked me the other day, she was beginning to whine a little bit about quitting, her, tendering her resignation. Are you fixing to say I can't say this? No, no, no. no. Okay. Like a lion. Like a lion, like roaring like a lion. There wasn't much roaring going on in the congregation, but I think Lisa was jumping up and down in heaven and having a ball, so that's okay. Um, she said, I really miss already. She said, they studied a lesson tonight I've been planning for months and wanting to do, and I, w- I, didn't, I didn't do it. The children, a children's lesson because she's a children's minister there. She said, I really have attached those kids already. It's hard to leave. I said, yep, always is. A few minutes of silence, we was going down the road and further, and she said, you know, I really like doing the children's sermon. She knows I don't let many people do the children's sermon very often. <laughs> she said, if I come to, Par- to Carrollton, are you going to let me do the children's sermon every now and then? And I smiled and said, yep, I am. That'll be change. And I want to hear her do it because they've been bragging to me how good she's been doing about it. Well, I want to hear her. I've heard her a time or two there before I left, but... I don't share the children with many people. I just don't share the children's time. I might share the adult sermon more than the children's (laughs) sermon. But uh, that's just the way it is uh, for me. But you see, you can't even love what you love to the point of it getting in the way. She needs to keep responding to her call even though she has two small children. And she didn't know any of y'all. She didn't know what y'all are going to put her to doing. So she's leaving a lot of good friends and when the time comes and she chooses to do that, assuming she still does, and she's not getting any pressure to do it, maybe from her husband, but not from us because that's her decision. Everything in your faith life and everything in your life should be your decision. Now, I know if you're married, you may have to make joint decisions. I get that. You may have somebody in charge. I get that too. You may really like the way it talks about men and women in the book of Genesis. You may think that description is more than description. You may think it's a prescription and that every woman needs to do exactly what every man tells her to. Now, I've met some men, and I'd say, women, that's probably not a very good idea. It may be really your biblical idea, but you might better want to check your whole card on who taught you that biblical idea. Uh, I've seen a lot of men that insisted on doing the finances, and they were awful. They were awful. And just saying... There's a lot of ways to read Scripture and interpret it. I'm not, I'm not opposed to it. I'm not signing up for it, although I used to ascribe to it. Ask my wife. I really wanted her right where she belonged. I was conservative. The husband is the head of the house. That second part of that verse, as Christ is the head of the church, I never went too far into that. Jesus was a little too humble for me. That was a hard way for Doug to walk. Just saying there are a lot of gods. God of your past. He tells a terrible illustration here about going on his date with a girl and they had dogs they let out in the wild. I've got five minutes. Thank you, dear. Uh, I need you on Sunday morning to tell me that too probably, but I might not be able to find you out of the way you move around out there. <laughs> so he talks about walking through. If you haven't read this, this is classic. And this is the kind of writer he is. He's a d- guy going on a date. He walks into the house. He notices, well, there's a lot of dog stuff on the ground. But he is concentrated on the date. He's sitting in the room with his date-to-be, and his parents come into the room, and suddenly he's aware there's a terrible smell. And he kind of sniffs out his girlfriend and says, it's not her. He can't detect this coming from either of the parents. And with a sudden horror, he looks at the carpet, and the trail leads right to where he's sitting. And he realizes what he's done. He has brought his past, stinky though it is, into the room. Gooey little illustration. (laughs) 
But don't we do the same thing when we drag our gods of the past into the present and all the little stink with them? I love you, Jesus, but I got this little God I'm towing in with me here. I probably don't smell the God. But Jesus is sniffing the love of money coming out of my body. He is sniffing my love for success coming out of my body. He is looking at what I'm dragging from my past and I won't let go. He sees me eyeing that apple pie. And he knows I want the whole thing with extra cinnamon, please. Boy, that's going to be nice for not to get that reward. One piece, maybe a half a piece. And then get up and leave it away. Now it's a test, can I leave food on my plate? Can you leave food on your plate? Probably a lot of you can. My wife leaves food all the time on her plate. It's good for me to leave part of everything I, I eat. Just leave it there. It's good for me to eat stuff I don't like. Don't tell my wife that. <laughs> I don't need it served up for me. I need to choose to eat it because it's a choice after all. <laughs> the other day I had green beans and carrots mixed together. And What was the other vegetable on that plate that I had? It wasn't all that. Zucchini, Zucchini squash and baked chicken. And after it was over, Cindy, sympathetic Cindy, she worries about me all the time. She's so sympathetic. She looked at me after I'd eaten almost the bones, too, and that, and she said, are you full? <laughs> and I thought of all the gods I was thinking about worshiping, and then instead I just said, uh, I think I said, not really, not really satisfied. So what I do? I got up and left that table and walked out of the door. Because if I stayed, pretty soon I'd talk myself into a cookie or something else to satisfy me. Because food satisfies Doug. And now I've got two minutes. Third God, gods of our culture. Do we need to say anything about that? Gods of our culture? Oh, my word. Do we worship gods of our culture? We worship gods of our culture. And a lot of times we do it unknowingly. That's, that's what Sunday soccer is. Why do you think they invented Saturday night worship? It wasn't for the people who work at the hospitals or the nursing homes. It was for, so that people could have a whole day to enjoy on Sunday and still go to church for their Sabbath on an hour on Saturday night, early Saturday night, take the kids to the babysitter, and they could still do what they wanted to do for the last part of Saturday night. I think that's why they invented Saturday night worship. Now, I'm slightly biased. I still believe we ought to worship on Sundays because that's the first day of the work of the Christian faith. And, but I know it would be more convenient for a lot of people to do it on Saturday night in a two-hour space and give them all day Sunday to have with family because it's great family time. I would love to do a check, wouldn't you? I want to see every one of those Saturday night worshiping families and see if they're always together on Sunday spending quality family time, actually talking to their children. That's what I'd love to see. So now you know my pet peeve about Saturday worship. We'll probably see it here someday if you hang around long enough because we'll be out of the building that we're in, I hope. Too crowded, we'll have to do it. That's another thing. God of your past, God of our culture. And then there's, or the obvious one, worship God himself, the one true God who satisfies all our desires, who meets all our needs, the ones that are important. The God that will always love us. The God that will never betray us. I didn't say God would always heal your every illness. I did not say you will not have an early death. I did not say that your aunt wouldn't fall like mine did two days ago and then die because of a fall in a nursing home. We have our funeral on the 29th. I didn't say that Sally's grandmother wouldn't die that same way a few years ago when she was that lived to a ripe old age and fell and got a brain hemorrhage. I didn't say that your children would never have a trial or that you'd always have it easier, that you'd never get fired from a job you didn't deserve to be fired from. I just said God will never leave you. And God will always take you through to the next step. Life is challenging in this world, thank God. Otherwise, we'd all be pagans. If we weren't challenged with struggles, you know what we'd all do? Yeah, exactly. Struggles are one of our saving... I know some of you are thinking right now, you're thinking, well, boy, I ought to be very saved because I've got plenty of struggles. Okay. <laughs> I, I hear that. I hear that. But possibly the life you've outlined for yourself... And the desires that go with it may have become an idol for you. 
they may have. Just saying. There's a great little test in this book that you can go home. It starts on page 69, and it's entitled, and it's shadowed in a shadow box. Idle ID. Oh, I also forgot to tell you this one little thing. Okay, I'm going to be one minute over time. How did I ID an idol? This is something a professor said once, and I've used it a million times in ministry, and you get the chance to, too. People say, well, I don't worship much. I'm, I'm one my, my nephew likes to say, well, I'm not very spiritual. Every human being in every race, in every world, ever been discovered is spiritual and searching for something to worship. Every one of them. There's never been a culture one found that's not worshiping something. Including the one that says, I'm an atheist, I don't worship anything. Oh, yes, you do. I just told you I don't worship anything. You worship yourself and your own opinions about how smart you are. And I would hate to be you. Because you're not that smart. (laughs) And neither is any other human. Nobody's smart enough to think they're always right. Oh, my Lord. Nobody's that smart. Idol worship. Read that. Then you get to ask yourself the questions. How close are your choices to those of your parents? It's good that we have our parents to, to lean upon, but it's also good to grow toward making our own choices and being sure they are our choices. You owe your parents to evaluate what they shared with you intentionally and unintentionally and be honest with yourself about what they worshipped because many of them weren't always worshipping the things they needed to at different times. That doesn't mean you don't love them. It doesn't mean they don't love you. It doesn't mean they're not Christian. It means they're human. And it means you need to always be choosing what you're worshipping now based upon that experience and your own choice. Check out what you worship. And then the last part of it over there is what are the priorities and pursuits, what past priorities and pursuits continue to influence you? What gods would you identify as gods of culture? They're just everywhere, and we're trapped by them. And one god that our culture worships right now that's one of our biggest killers, doesn't matter what god you worship, as long as you worship with integrity. What a bunch of fooey. But it is the god of our culture for diversity to be the thing. Everybody's God is equal. Nobody's God is equal to the God we worship in this church. I don't care. I don't have to be, I'll never be rough with people who have other languages. I never embarrass them. I never make fun of them when they're in the room. I never do anything about what they worship except try to lead them to the one true God by trying to understand what they worship and beginning to question them about it. Read the story about Tom Brady, the quarterback in here. It's classic. It's classic about worshiping culture. And he says at the end of an interview on TV, I've got all this fame and all this stuff, but it's just not enough. I don't, there's something missing. And the guy, interviewer says, well, what is it? He says, I wish I knew. God, we know what he's missing. We know the purpose and the meaning that he's missing from his life. We hope and pray that he and millions of others can discover the one that they should be worshiping and the only one worthy of their continual love and the only one who will be there with them and for them throughout all eternity who is the Lord God, our God, that we know in Jesus Christ. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.